1: Nordic Crimes is a part of the ACAST family. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: She said, I don't know anybody that would want to hurt Scott. Not, oh my God, I know who did it. It's this ninja killer guy I used to date. Her actual quote was, Nobody would want to hurt him. I don't have any idea who would do this.
3: Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Today is part two of the Temujin Kenzu story. In 1986, known then as Fred Freeman, he was arrested for a murder that took place over 400 miles away, Where he was. And for the past almost 37 years, he's been fighting to clear his name. A young man by the name of Scott Macklem has been fatally shot and killed in the parking lot of Community College in Port Huron, Michigan, in November of 86. Unbeknownst to Temujin at this stage, he has a connection to this dead young man, a woman by the name of Crystal Merrill. A woman Temujin went on a couple of dates with, however, he says at some stage she becomes increasingly full-on, and in his words, stalker-like. So he would call it off. And this is when he, Michelle, who is the mother of his son, and a flatmate make the move over 400 miles away, near to the town of Escanaba. Temujin and his then-girlfriend and mother of his child, Michelle, were living in a small rural farmhouse. Temujin says he was long gone before Crystal had even started dating Scott.
2: Started dating him around. I, I saw her last in June. She said she started dating him. I believe the middle of July. So I'm long gone. I've moved away. I'm in the Upper Peninsula. I'm long gone when she's seeing this guy. Yep. Now there's no cell phones in those days. There's no internet. I'm stone broke. I'm living in this dumpy little $200 a month farmhouse. Shelley's on food stamps. You know we're getting uh, the Dole. I think is what they call it. And so it, we have nothing. You know I have a beater car. I have this little beater motorcycle. You know um, we didn't even get a phone until like the last week we were in this farmhouse. So I have no idea what's going on down there, and I don't care. This girl was not a part of my life. I'm with Michelle. She's pregnant now with my son. And plus I'm dating other girls in town because that's what I was doing back then. You know, I was a rock and roll guy and I was womanizing.
3: The murder of Scott Macklem takes place on the 5th of November, and the first Temujin would even hear that his name had been associated with any killing was a few days later on the 9th, when it appears that there's been a mix-up along the verbal grapevine, and Temujin is told he's being blamed for the murder of someone else.
2: On November the, I believe it was the 9th, I stayed in town overnight. I was with a girl named Monica. The following morning, which would have been Sunday morning, and you can check the calendar, see if I have these days right. Um, I went over to Paul DeMar's house and uh, Paul DeMar is still a friend and supporter. Paul was making us breakfast. So this was early in the morning. I think he was a little disgruntled that I'd awakened him. And um, I was telling him about the night before and Dash calls and says, hey, now for For the listeners, my nickname's Mickey. So he's like, hey, Mick, um, there's a story going around town that Tom Ford is dead. That was my buddy that lived with me. And uh, we'd had a falling out, and Tom had moved and gone back to his family uh, just a few weeks prior to the murder. And so um, I hadn't heard from him. I hadn't really tried to contact him. He'd stolen some money and a motorcycle, and I didn't really care to hear from him again. He was kind of a bum. He says, Tom's dead and they think you killed him. And now Tom was a childhood friend. So I was very upset about this. Even though I was mad about the incident, I was very upset. I was like, what do you mean Tom's dead? He said, "Um, Tom's dead. Mike's dad, Gary, who was a local probation officer, said that you killed Tom and the police are looking for you. And I was freaking out. Like, you know, even though we'd had this falling out, obviously I didn't want any violence to happen to him. I called Michelle from Paul's house. And you can see this on Paul's bill also. And um, I tell Michelle, Tom's dead. She knew Tom since childhood. She was really upset. And I said, they think I did it. She's like, oh, my God, why would they think you did that? So my phone record then shows me making a bunch of phone calls trying to find out what's going on. I tell Shelly, I'm going to pack a bag. I'm going to go down and see Tom's family. I'm going to find out what's going on. And my first goal was to find out what really happened. And obviously to clear my name. Now, Tom and I just had a falling out. So there was a part of me that was like, wow, if something happened to Tom, maybe they think I was involved because we had this bad falling out and I wanted to get it all cleared up.
3: We do need to point out that Tom was totally fine and Temujin's knowledge still very much alive and well. But nonetheless, at the time, he was desperate to clear up what was going on, so continues to call around and
2: try and get Tom's family on the phone. As I'm calling Tom's family, and my phone records show this, they're refusing to tell me anything and they're hanging up on me. And I've known this family literally since I was born. They, we lived in the same street that I grew up on when I was born. And, um, I'm two, three years older than Tom. And I actually had helped change his diapers when he was a little kid. So the fact that family wouldn't tell me anything had really, you know, scared me. Now, what's important for everyone to understand is this entire time, what I'm not doing is I'm not calling crystal. I'm not calling port Huron, I'm not doing any digging into this case because I didn't know anything about this case. I had been told and my witnesses confirmed that they were told it was Tom Ford that was dead. So my records show me trying to find out what happened to Tom. And um, so Deanna and I go to a restaurant on the 13th of November. And while we're in this restaurant, I call up to Michelle, who remember is pregnant, living in this farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. And um, she says, there were some strange men at our door. And of course I'm concerned for her safety. And I said, if they come back, you call the police right away. And I'm going to keep calling and checking on you. And she said they claimed that they wanted to hunt on our property, but she's like, they didn't have any rifles or anything with them and they weren't wearing hunting clothing. And I was like, I thought right away, you know, I'm thinking like the average person, there's some maniacs want to go in there and rape and kill Michelle or something, she's a very pretty girl.
3: This is where things are going to start to escalate and escalate quickly. What Michelle and Temujin were unaware of at the time was that Crystal Merrill had put Temujin's name forward to the police as someone who could have committed this crime. Now, we'll hear more about that very soon. However, here's Michelle to talk us through what exactly was happening on the other end of the phone at the farmhouse that day.
0: They arrived. It was morning. Um, I had on was. Very pregnant. Well, I think I was like seven months at that time because our son was born in January. But um, I had on a sweatshirt, sweatpants, socks. Uh, That was pretty much it. And um, I just gotten up and they called. I got a phone call. And they asked if I was Michelle Woodworth. I said yes, of course. And they introduced themselves on the phone. And they said they wanted me to put the phone down, not to hang it up, but to put it down on the table and walk out the door with what I had on and come down the driveway because they were at the end of the driveway and they wanted to talk to me. I said, can I put a coat on? And they told me no. So I could not even put my coat on. Um, I put the phone down and I did what they asked. I had my hands up. Um, I mean, like I told you, the the snow was like piled on the sides of the driveway. It was like freezing and cold. And I walked to the end of the driveway, which was very long. And there was not only the police car that they were in, but there was also a line of I'm, I'm going to just say, I think at least five police cars there oh in a line, if not more. Um that I could see. And I just saw a police car, that's all I could see, right? So I'm just walking out down the driveway. Um, He introduced himself as Detective Bounds. He tells me to get in the car. And then he introduced me to Detective Hudson who was already in the car and started asking me questions about um, Temujin. So they asking me um, where he was and and did I know, you know, all these different things. And I just, I was terrified, really. I was so scared and I I was kind of mad, but you know, that they were here and they were asking this and I was like, what, you know, what's going on? But that has really scared me to death. So Finally, I said, do you have a warrant for him? And they showed me a piece of paper and the only thing the warrant said was his name on it, which was Fred Freeman at the time. Um, They showed me a piece of paper with his name on it, but nothing else that they were searching for, just him. They were searching for him. So then Detective Hudson, who was behind the wheel, drove me and Detective Bounds back down the driveway, and we get to the up to the house. The house is surrounded with SWAT team. They're surrounded with guys in in black, and machine guns, like Jesus big guns. Christ. It was like a movie It really was It was like I, I I didn't even know what to say I was just like What is going on It's like they're after Charles and Manson. out And he, yeah It was crazy It was really crazy And uh, we went into the house And then finally We hadn't been in there Very long at all And the phone rang And then Fred had called I called him Fred Sorry But uh, he had called And um Detective Bounce Answered the phone And he's He's like What's going on Why is there a guy Answering my phone And then they Ensued into an argument On the phone Or you know at that time.
2: So I'm paranoid for her. So I'm calling and checking on her. So when I call back, a man answers the phone and I, again, I flip out and I'm like, who the hell is this? You better get out of this house. And I'm calling the police right now and she better be okay. And he says, I am the police. And this is when this, this clown, And he's a huge part of the case, John Bounds. This guy was uh, crooked as the day is long. He was involved with the mob. He had been prosecuted by the Michigan Attorney General's office. He was just a slimeball.
3: Detective John Bounds of the Port Huron Police Department would be the lead detective in this case. A man with his own shady past. And in fact, while doing some research, I managed to come across some court documents from 1981 where John Bounds, a uniformed sergeant at the time, was caught in an undercover operation participating in illegal gambling activities. So there's plenty more to say on Detective John Bounds and we will look into him further in an upcoming episode. So Temujin is on the phone with Detective Bounds who has a team in his house ransacking it as his partner, Michelle, stands aside and watches helplessly. And this is when he first finds out about Scott.
2: He says, I am the police. And uh, I'm like, what are you doing in my home? Well, I'm looking for you. And I'm like, what for? And he says, for killing Scott. And I literally say, who the F is Scott? And where's Michelle? And he won't tell me about Michelle. And I don't know this is a cop. So I tell him again, I'm hanging up and calling the police. He goes, I'm a police officer at the Port Huron Police Department. And, uh, and he says, and I'm going to get you. And he starts, this clown starts threatening me on the phone. Tell me I'm going to go down in a hail of bullets and I'm going to die and all this crazy TV cop nonsense. And I'm just kind of like, yeah, yeah, buddy, you're, you know, you're real scary over the phone. Um, I said, uh, put Michelle on so when they refuse to put michelle on then i tell them i'm hanging up and i'm calling the police and then they finally agree to put michelle on and she tells me and this is a matter of record for everyone um that they were destroying my house without a warrant cutting locks dumping everything out ripping things apart tearing apart our barn tearing apart this little uh storage building that we had busting locks off the car doors everything and they refused to produce a warrant well just for all the listeners it's a matter of record in this case. There was never a warrant to do any of this. And in fact, they were specifically ordered not to do any of this by a local judge. They were told they could arrest me and nothing more.
3: I can't even imagine how terrifying that must have been.
2: It was. Yeah. It's it's uh never never left my memory and never will. It was, you know. So they destroyed my home for seven hours, they found nothing. While they did this, they left Michelle in a freezing car in a blizzard outside, literally barefoot and pregnant on a plastic bench seat in 20 below weather. So, you know, she's terrified, she's freezing, they're threatening her, they're telling her she's going to prison, you're going to lose your baby. It was, it was a nightmare scenario. Um, I was scared to death.
0: One, in in the interrogation, one of the things that he did say that was, yeah, that was scary was that he said, if I'm lying to him, that I would have my baby in prison.
3: Still on the phone to Detective Bounds, he eventually finds out why, or more to the point, who has named him in this murder investigation.
2: And during this heated argument with this cop who gets back on the phone, he tells me that I killed Scott and I'm back to who the F is Scott. He goes, come on, you know who Scott is, the guy you shot in the parking lot. I'm like, what parking lot where? And he's like, at the college, come on, you know. And I'm like, no, what college? Now, again, for listeners, we never, ever uh, hung out in the Port Huron area. We're not from Port Huron. We didn't live in Port Huron. So it's, it's a whole nother town. It's a whole nother area. Anyways, regardless, um, first I ask him why he thinks I did this, and he tells me Crystal. And I said, Crystal, Crystal Merrill, that psycho nut job from Croswell? And he says, yeah, yeah, she said you killed her boyfriend. I'm like, why the F would I do that? So it was a lot of expletives going back and forth. And I says, well, you know what, I'm gonna find out. I hang up and I call Crystal.
3: As I've said many times during this show, I will always be guided by the men and women who I speak with when it comes to looking into their stories. Some just want to give their side of events. Others give a few leads or some names for me to look up and search. And some have reams and reams of information to supply me. Phone numbers, letters, reports. This is most definitely one of those cases. I'm in regular contact with Temujin's wife, Paula, who has been supplying me with a list of possible numbers for people to try and contact for this story. One of those people is Crystal Merrill. So, very early one morning, I sat down and began to try and see if I could speak with Crystal.
0: We're sorry, you have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service.
3: Now, as someone who listens to a lot of investigative podcasts myself, I always get excited when you get the suspense of listening to them trying to track down key witnesses or people who may never have spoken about these incidents before. So, while I was dialing through number after number, I had these grand visions of my own major breakthrough with this case. And, well, unfortunately, this sleuth journalist is just hitting dead end hello we are not available now after dead end uh, after dead end
0: okay uh, yeah I don't think uh, you got the right number
3: okay alright well I appreciate your time thank you sir So we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, Temujin Kenzu will be surrounded by men with machine guns and body
2: armour. So relax, dude. No one's going to get shot. They were actually really nice. They were terrified. But they were, I think they were more afraid of getting shot by their own guys than they were by yeah, a puppy yeah. doing anything. As a
3: SWAT team is sent to arrest him.
1: Cool fact. You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
2: So I I called Crystal and from this donut shop right by the restaurant, and this is in the Troy area in Michigan. And um, I'm like, hey, crazy person, you know, why are you telling the police that I killed your boyfriend? And she's saying all this nutty stuff. And you have to understand this woman was a complete loon. I mean, she, the story she told, she, she claimed I could teleport. She claimed I had poison darts taped to my wrist, steel blades. These are actual quotes in the case. So everyone knows I'm not, I'll never, as I promise you, no hyperbole. These are quotes from the case. She claimed I wore steel blades in my shoes that I used to kill police officers whenever I got stopped for a traffic infraction. Mm -hmm. She claimed that I wore poison darts. Yeah. Poison darts taped to my wrist that I had a ninja claws that I also used to kill people, that I could jump 40 feet out of trees and land on the ground uninjured, that she'd seen me do this, that I would just appear out of the trees magically, that I was doing hand signals to spies on the Canadian side of the water. Um, I mean, it just went on and, and on. And this is and all on we record, got in this. High she speed said this. Chases. this is all on record, all on record. She claimed that I took her to a house of weapons and secret ninja women... She claimed I had secret bank accounts at, at a bank, Citizens Bank. Now, for the listeners, every single story she told was checked out and, and turned out to be a lie. So they went to Citizens Bank. They talked to every employee, showed my photos to everybody. I don't exist. No secret bank accounts. None of it. They, they go to the so called House of Weapons. It's a tattoo shop, and there's no back room, better yet, a back room of women and weapons. And They went on they, this high speed chases in, in Camaros and bullet-riddled phone booths, but of course then when she took him to the area, there's no bullet-riddled phone booths. It was just more garbage. It was all stuff from movies.
3: You'd think if Temujin was being looked at as suspect number one in this murder case that his name must have been instantly brought up as the only possible suspect, especially as the police seemed to be all guns blazing trying to track him down and to bring him in. Well, not according to Temujin and the police reports.
2: When Scott was killed, and this is really important for everybody to know, when Scott was killed, his family and she, Crystal, the supposed girlfriend, slash, she claimed she was his fiance, but there was no proof they were engaged. She said, I don't know anybody that would want to hurt Scott. Not, oh, my God, I know who did it. It's this ninja killer guy I used to date. Her actual quote was, nobody would want to hurt him. I don't have any idea who would do this. The family said the exact same thing. They had never even heard of me. Now this is important because later when they start building up this phony story, suddenly I've been chasing Scott for months and everybody knew it. But remember if your if your wife was murdered, heaven forbid, and there'd been a guy stalking her for six months, the first thing you're going to tell the police is, Oh my God, I know who did it. It's this Temujin Kensu guy I interviewed on my program. Okay. But that's not what she did. The second interview, again, nothing, not, Oh my God. So what happened was, they were at the hospital, and the the, the dirty police officer, John Bounds, who we now know was involved in this whole setup, um, was talking to Crystal's sister, Tracy, and said, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. A lot of times, it's an ex-husband or an ex-boyfriend in these cases, and so Crystal says... No, there's no, no ex-boyfriend that, you know, that has any problem with Scott. And Tracy goes, well, she used to date this guy. He's like this martial arts guy with a leather jacket and a motorcycle. And he sings in a heavy metal band and right away says, Tell me all about him. Now we know this from the actual notes, no matter what they say. Now we have all the documentation and they say, well, no, he never even met Scott. Yeah. But tell me all about him anyways. And this cop became fixated with me and he decided, I think he went back to Cleveland and said, I've got our patsy. I've got our guy he's this motorcycle rock and roll guy and he's a martial arts guy and he can throw knives and all this crazy stuff so third report with crystal not a word about me and scott fourth report it's now i'm a bad guy but not a word about scott fifth report suddenly i put a contract on scott and i was going to have him killed oh and by the way i met him at some mall supposedly so now this is, this is five reports
3: in. So Temujin is still on the phone with Crystal, trying to find out just why she's decided to put his name forward as the man who could have shot and killed her new partner. And all the while that he's talking with Crystal, police are listening in.
2: So I'm accusing Crystal of being a nut job, which is why I dumped her. And she's saying these, all these nutty things like, remember that time I saw you throw a knife? So the police are listening. To this day, we think they recorded the call, but they won't release it, and they claim they didn't. But it's really important because she was, she was lying a lot during the call. What we did get, though, was the notes from the call. Now, the reason this is important for listeners. Later on, they had an officer named Dave Hall who passed last year from a blood-based cancer, horrible human being, also corrupt, also involved in multiple criminal investigations. He writes this long report saying he listened to the call and he has me saying all these incriminating things. I mean they're really incriminating. Like like you know, uh, uh, you gave me you made a problem and I took care of it. Now remember, I'm living in the woods in the middle of nowhere. How is this guy a problem for me? I'm not in contact with Crystal. I'm, I'm, I don't care about Crystal. I'm with Shelly. I'm with a bunch of girls. I'm in a band. I live way, way away. I'm practically in another country. I'm right next to Canada. Um, obviously, I wouldn't say you made a problem for me because obviously this guy's not a problem for me. Anyways, the reason that matters is he claimed this all came from the conversation this is a matter of the trial record also when he was on the stand lying and and talking all this nonsense um i saw him shuffling through some papers in a case that he had on his lap and i demanded to know what the papers were and the prosecutor had a fit and in the states we have a law that says if you use notes to refresh your memory you have to produce the notes you can't just say i'm getting this from my notes well he screwed up and he admitted he was using the notes to refresh his memory huge mistake So the prosecutor was screaming, trying to stop us from getting the notes. And I was telling my lawyer, literally, if you don't get those notes, I'm going to punch you in the face right now in front of the jury. We're going to get a mistrial and then I'm going to go to the state bar and tell them you let him do this. And uh, that that was enough for my drunk crackhead lawyer to perk up a bit and go, okay, I want those notes.
3: Okay, so I just want to jump in here quickly because you might be thinking, wait a second, is he calling his own lawyer a drunk crackhead and saying that he was going to hit him? The attorney that Temujin would end up with at his trial is almost a story in itself. And again, one we will take a look at very soon.
2: Now the jury's watching this, or the judge would have surely said no because he was corrupt as a day as long too. He made him give up the notes. And so for everyone listening, not a single thing, and I mean not a single thing he said that I said was in those notes. Not one word, not one confession, not one implication, not one incrimination was in those notes. Instead, it was exactly what I just told the listeners. Me telling Crystal that she was crazy, that you're a nut job, that you're telling people I'm driving around shooting people. It's me making allegations against Crystal and saying you're a wacko. And them trying to find out where I'm at with notes saying, do we have a trace yet? Do we know where he is? Somebody get me some coffee.
3: I have been supplied a copy of these notes that were made during this phone call and I can indeed say that from what I have read, nothing would indicate at any point Temujin announcing anything that would remotely seem incriminating. In fact, as he says, the main things you see really are requests for coffee and a desperate attempt to keep him on the phone so that they can get a trace on his location. Which they do. And a SWAT team is mobilised.
2: So while the call was going on, of course, um, they sent a SWAT team after me and the SWAT team arrested me. And they had been told that, of course, I had all these secret weapons and compartments in my clothing and all this crazy stuff. And um, they were terrified. So they sent two officers in in body armor, what's called an apron from the neck, like literally down to the knees to approach me. And I said, guys, like, I don't know what's going on, but relax. I'm not going to give you a hard time. I'm on the phone right now trying to find out. And they said, well, you're supposed to be some bad SOB and some ninja death commando. And I was like, yeah, I'm not any of that. Nice. And I got like rock and roll clothing on. I got my, I got my hair shagged. I got one of those black denim, you know, full length dusters, all the metal guys wore in the eighties. I got a, a surfing t-shirt, you know, anyways. So, um, tennis shoes, I got a high top tennis shoes on, hardly a ninja. And, um, they, they're like, can we approach him? Like, yeah, come on, just everything's okay, relax, you know? And I see all the SWAT guys out there and, and, and the two cops are freaking out. I've never heard the one cop says, listen, there's a lot of guys out there with guns and, and, and they're all pointed towards us and you're on the other side of us. So if they start shooting, we're going to get killed. And the guy goes, this body armor doesn't cover the back. It was hilarious. <laughs> and I was like, relax. I so said, relax, dude. No one's going to get shot. They were actually really nice. They were terrified, but they were, I think they were more afraid of getting shot by their own guys than they were by yeah, yeah. me doing anything. Yeah. So the, the guy says, I'm going for my radio. And he picks up the radio and goes, the guy's being really cool. He's not being a problem. He says, we can search him. They search me. I'm completely unarmed, of course. And um, they're like, listen, we, we have to cuff you. I said, I, I totally understand, you know, and they put the cuffs on real gently. And one of the guys uh, says, tells everybody to stand down. They start standing down and they're getting in their trucks and their vehicles and stuff. And he says, can we search your car? And I said, guys, like, I don't know what's going on, but I got some crazy psycho trying to set me up. And I'm a little paranoid right now. Can I watch while you do the search? And they let me go out the vehicle with them while they search the car. No contraband, no guns, no uh, drugs, no explosives or whatever. And they uh, secured the vehicle in front of me and they put the keys right in the glove box and they took me to jail.
3: Fred Freeman, ironically, is arrested never to be a free man ever again. He's taken back to the police station where he would be subsequently picked up by the Port Huron authorities to be taken back to the town where this crime took place where were you in in this sort of relation to where this crime this is still in
2: troy this is in troy michigan right okay so this is probably a man i want to say about an hour hour and a half from port huron so i uh they come back to talk to me they're like listen man they were telling us all this crap about you and we were like this is a bunch of bs and we looked you up and you got like a bad check charge from washington state and we called them they don't even want you on the warrant and i was like yeah i know it's no big deal i i'm paying off the debt and um they're like, you're supposed to try to kill us with steel claws, and they're laughing. And these guys actually bought me fast food, and they were just sitting there talking to me. They were really cool. Poor Huron gets there, and, and they're just furious that I'm being treated well, apparently. And they're being asses. You know, and they're shoving me around. They, they put me in the squad car, and they, they tell me how I'm going to prison for life, and I'm gonna die in prison, and blah, blah, blah. Which, I guess, <laughs> turned out to be true. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that was their plan, at least. Yeah, they had a plan in place in, in the beginning. And so the whole way there, I'm protesting my innocence.
3: With almost all the stories we've covered, we've heard extensively about these intrusive interrogations that these accused men and women will face after being arrested. And you're no doubt ready to hear about how Temujin was interrogated himself for hours upon hours about this murder. Well, he wasn't. In fact, he apparently was never spoken to or questioned at all by police after his arrest.
2: I was never interviewed by the people who accused me of murder. So I'd like your listeners to find any case where anybody in a situation like mine was not interviewed. I mean, there are television programs like 48 hours in the States. It's just interviews. Yeah. But I was literally never interviewed. And I mean, they never once tried to sit down and even talk to me. And it wasn't that I refused. I have an actual police report that says I'm demanding to know why they're not talking to me and why I'm not being interviewed and why I'm not being allowed to tell my side of the story and for the listeners it's because they did not want there to be a record they knew what happened they knew i didn't kill scott macklem they knew within a couple of days that i was up north with a ton of people they'd already done their partial investigation by the time they were looking for me they had already heard from people up there that i was with them that day mike olson the person who told dash i was with mike olson the day of the murder he's one of my alibi witnesses so the minute they contacted the police up there and they had spoken to gary olson mike's father Mike said, Dad, I was with him on Wednesday. I was with him in town. We were we were at the Taekwondo school. We were on the sidewalk. I skipped class that day. My class records show, I skipped class. I know I saw Mick that day. And they also did no investigation whatsoever. And I mean no investigation. They didn't question people at the college. They didn't look into Scott's past. They didn't even try to find out where he was the morning of or the night before the murder. There's, there are no reports about anything regarding this individual. So the normal course of business in a homicide and remember i was arrested days after the murder is you look into the victim first what was he doing where was he at who was he associating with there's nothing
0: you have one minute remaining
3: And that's all we have time for. But coming up in our next episode, we delve more into Scott Macklem and just exactly what he might have been involved in.
2: Now, you know, obviously I don't think this person should have been killed for any reason, better yet, drug dealing or drug selling. But it looks like he was involved with some very, very, very shady people. As well as the crime itself. There was a woman standing right by Scott when he was shot. The witnesses say she got into a car and drove away. Next time on One Minute Remaining
3: one minute remaining is a mash pumpkin production produced hosted and created by jack lawrence editing and sound design by jack lawrence and dom evans this show is part of the acast creator network